another conservative historian podcast. This one entitled, The Vice Presidential Choice Through U.S. History. The date is August 2020, and this is Bell Avis. Quote, The most insignificant office that ever the invention of man contrived. Unquote. Quote, I am vice president. In this, I am nothing, but I may be everything. Unquote. John Adams. When Joe Biden's decision on the vice presidency came down on August 11th, 2020, the choice of Kamala Harris was not precisely earth-shattering. Biden had limited his choice when on March 15th, he declared he would choose a woman. Then, on May 28th, the murder of George Floyd, an African-American, at the hands of a white police officer and the subsequent Black Lives Matter protests made it politically unlikely that that choice would fall upon a white person. There are only two nationally known women of color on the Democratic side, Harris and the controversial Tulsi Gabbard, who though being Polynesian, was not part black, as was Harris. Biden cycled through several possible African-American women, but in the end, there was still Harris, a sitting U.S. senator who was attorney general of the largest state in the Union. And though Harris was left enough to appease progressives, she was not quite to the extremes of an Elizabeth Warren. Several progressives were probably wooing the age restriction that would keep the electric, if intellectually challenged, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez from the slot. And of course, there was a black woman who was arguably the most popular Democrat in the country. But Michelle Obama has stated that she, quote, hates politics, unquote, and that choice would render the Biden presidency impotent even more than his advanced age and deteriorating faculties. John Adams is quoted above, but here are a few other statements on the worth of the office of Vice President of the United States. Founding Father Roger Sherman said, if the Vice President were not to be President of the Senate, he would be without employment. Former Vice President Thomas R. Marshall stated, once there were two brothers, one ran away to sea, the other was elected Vice President of the United States, and nothing was heard of either of them again. Teddy Roosevelt, before becoming Vice President, said, I would a great deal rather be anything, say Professor of History, than Vice President. He also stated that the position is not a stepping stone to anything except oblivion. Like so much, Teddy Roosevelt was wrong about that one. Former Vice President John Nance Garner said, the Vice President is not worth a bucket of warm piss. He also added, taking the job was the worst damn fool mistake I ever made. And finally, former Vice President Harry Truman said, look at all of the Vice Presidents in history. Where are they? They're about as useful as a cow's fifth teat. The use of this quote is intentional. We know where Truman lies today usually in the upper quartile of successful presidents. Because Franklin Delano Roosevelt was an egomaniac, he took incredible steps, enabled by his doctor, his staff, and his family, to maintain deniability about his deteriorating health. 
However, the Democratic bosses knew of his condition, which explains why they disposed of progressive Henry Wallace in 1944 for the more moderate and reliable Truman. This was one of the only instances in U.S. history in which the selection of a vice presidential running mate was with the view of the presidency itself, making all of those acerbic, if amusing, statements above moot. 2020 is the second time this has happened. Yesterday, during a 15-minute statement, Joe Biden at times seemed to struggle reading from a teleprompter. He does not do interviews and keeps an extremely light schedule. Even in a COVID period, this is strange for a presidential candidate just 60 days removed from the election. There is no glee in this, as this fate, or something worse, awaits us all. But we are all not running for a position as the most powerful person in the world. As Adam noted, it could become everything. And with Joe Biden's health, Compared to his demeanor just even a few years ago, the deterioration is marked. If a conservative such as myself sees it, so does a progressive. Quote, but I also believe, and it's personal, and I, I was actually very, it was hurtful to hear you talk about the reputations of two United States senators who built their reputations and career on segregation of race in this country. And it was not only that, but you also worked with them to oppose busing. Unquote. This was Kamala Harris's remarks to Joe Biden during a summer of 2019 Democratic debate. To be clear, Harris did not directly accuse Biden of racism. Yet, by noting he was praiseworthy of senators who were racist, and by supporting a policy that she believed was racist, she was certainly making some, quote, personal, unquote, charge. She was essentially saying, though Joe Biden himself was not a racist, his actions enabled racism, and it is still a damning accusation. In another event, a reporter asked Harris, quote, as somebody who has a relationship with Vice President Biden, what message would you give the women who feel like their space has invaded in the past by the vice president, unquote. Harris replied, quote, I believe them and I respect them being able to tell their story and having the courage to do it, unquote. Perhaps to her future political calculations or maybe simple belief in Biden, she rejected the contention of former Biden aide Tara Reid that Biden had sexually assaulted her. And by accepting the role of vice presidential candidate with Biden, she is essentially reconciled with all of these views that she expressed one year ago. Harris is not the first, and indeed not the last, politician to accuse a political rival of some form of malfeasance, and then later sign on to the ticket. George H.W. Bush famously labeled Reagan's economic programs of lower taxes, which would lead to higher revenue, as, quote, voodoo economics. Unquote. And again, in 1980, later signed on to be Reagan's running mate. But let's be clear. Bush's charge was about policy. Harris's charge is more about the person. In both of these cases, there was a choice. Reagan chose to put H.W. Bush 
on the ticket as his running mate. It was his decision. And presumably, Biden made that same decision in regard to Kamala Harris. Yet, at one point in the history of the Republic, this was not a choice. At the inception of the Constitution, the second largest vote getter became the vice president. In those first two elections, the one George Washington won, this worked out pretty well given that the president and his vice president, John Adams, were of the same party. And no one at that time significantly rivaled Washington. But in the election of 1796, one time Adams' friend and collaborator, Thomas Jefferson, became the vice president. This was problematic because the two had very different policy differences. And whereas Adams could not challenge Washington, Jefferson had no qualms about challenging Adams. Things got interesting when in the election of 1800, Jefferson and Aaron Burr tied in electoral votes. The election went to the House of Representatives where it took 36 ballots for Jefferson to emerge victoriously. Burr later distinguished himself by being the only sitting vice president to date in American history to kill another man in a duel. Given that man was founding Father Alexander Hamilton, Burr's ambitions died on Wee Hawkins Plains along with Hamilton. The election of 1800 was so problematic that an amendment was devoted to the fix, which consisted of having special elections for each office. This amendment, the 12th states, quote, they shall name in their ballots the person voted for as president and in distinct ballots the person voted for as vice president, unquote. But with the differentiation of campaigns, how did the vice presidential candidate get chosen? For nearly 100 years after the passage of the 12th Amendment, party conventions would select the vice presidential candidate themselves. A notable exception was William McKinley in 1896. With his strong organization and selection on the Republican National Convention's first ballot, the popular McKinley could pretty much get his preferred choice, Garrett Hobart, a senator from New Jersey, as his running mate. But this was relatively unprecedented. For nearly all of that period of time, most of the presidential candidates were told who their running mate would consist. As with so many other political norms, it was Franklin Delano Roosevelt who broke the precedent of party selection by essentially telling the Democratic Party that in 1940, his running mate would be Henry Wallace. In 1984, it was Walter Mondale, a former vice president himself, who chose his running mate, Geraldine Ferraro, ahead of the convention, which was probably the final gasp of that institution as anything other than a four-day commercial and something for political news uh, junkies to do in the dog days of summer. Doris Kearns Goodwin has written many histories, but her most famous is her Lincoln book, Team of Rivals. Not only is the book well-written and interesting, but Goodwin managed to the nearly impossible task of providing something new about Lincoln after almost 200 books on the 16th president. Yet, most of our political history, as relates to vice presidents, is rivals, without quite as much team. Notably missing from Kern's Team of Rivals list, which includes 
Seward, Chase, and Bates is Lincoln's first vice president. Go ahead. Can you name him? The clock is ticking, and Alex Trebek awaits. Ding, 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 ding. The name is Hannibal Hamlin of Maine. In Lincoln's second election of 1864, he chose a true rival, a Southerner from another party named Andrew Johnson, and this VP turned president was the first to be impeached. In terms of rivals, not just Burr and Jefferson, but in 1824, Federalist John Quincy Adams received Southerner Daniel C. Calhoun as his vice president. Later, that same Calhoun served in the same role for Andrew Jackson, but after the nullification crisis, Calhoun was later succeeded by Martin Van Buren, a stalwart Jackson supporter. So much for rivals. Van Buren's presidential election in 1836 set a fascinating precedent, though one that was not to meet fruition until well over 138 years later. Though presidents number two and three, Adams and Jefferson, were VPs before their ascendancy, no VP after 1800 became president until Van Buren's election. Burr has his place in history, but Americans should be forgiven if no one knows the likes of George Clinton or Daniel Tompkins. The election of Van Buren, accomplished largely because he had the full support of the highly popular Jackson, set the precedent that even if one did not get the office through death, the office could be a stepping stone to the big job. As noted earlier, this was yet another thing that Theodore Roosevelt got wrong. However, the reality that it was death and assassination that mostly led to VPs becoming president. In the first 52 years of the Republic, no president died in office, either through human-made or natural death. In the subsequent 61 years, five presidents either died of natural causes or an assassin's bullet elevating their vice presidents. But it was Richard Nixon, yes, Richard Nixon, who changed the perception of the vice president for modern times. Nixon dutifully served as Eisenhower's VP for eight years, but he was actually given some things to do, unlike the tortured Adams. As the Senate.gov website states, quote, instead, this ambitious young politician fought to remain in what had once been considered a meaningless office. Over the previous four years, Nixon had not only worked hard to promote the policies of the Eisenhower administration, but had used the vice presidency to build a foundation of support among the regulars of the Republican Party. Though he lost the election of 1960 to John F. Kennedy, the election was so close that he was later renominated and won in 1968. This was the first time since 1836 that a person who was once vice president became so on his own election. Since then, the U.S. has seen Hubert Humphrey, Walter Mondale, George H.W. Bush, Al Gore, and now Joe Biden to all run for election as president after serving in the office of vice president. Four of the last six vice presidents from 1976 through 2016 have run for office. Though the office is now a platform for their run, the history is clear. The odds of becoming president after the untimely loss of the president is still far more possible than winning the nomination and then the general election. Here is one of those historical what-ifs. 
Given these circumstances, if Joe Biden were not this Biden, but rather the Biden of 2012, when he vigorously and successfully debated vice presidential candidate Paul Ryan, would Harris still have signed on, assuming Biden would not finish just one, but two full terms? Given her ambitions, extreme even for a politician, the prominence of the role, Adams notwithstanding, and how many have used the part as successful presidential launch of their own, it is still hard to see her stick to her 2019 opinions of Biden. Even if Biden were healthy, Harris would always be interested in the role. But his health, which unlike FDR's is an open book, makes the role hugely desirable. Now, to be fair, Harris is not the only calculator in this election. Mike Pence once said that, quote, bad moral habits, unquote, harm families, and that a president should be held to moral demands that normal people live by. This was stated during the age of Bill Clinton's presidency and after the relatively clean image of George H.W. Bush had vacated the office. Pence has remained silent on the personal morality of Donald Trump, but even at the age of 74, if Trump wins, he will be the oldest president ever, Trump still seems pretty vigorous, so Pence will likely be VP for a full four years in the event of a Trump victory. Though Pence will probably run in 2024, he will have a host of Republicans waiting him on that debate stage. Should Biden win, it will be Harris all alone. And there is little chance that she will not join the ranks of vice presidents such as John Tyler, Millard Fillmore, and even Calvin Coolidge, who all had nothing, but then were turned into everything. Thank you. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. This is Bell Avis. We would strongly encourage you to look at www.conservativehistorian.com. We have columns. We have book reviews. We have videos. We've got it all. If you really like this content, there is a lot more awaiting you at our site. So please visit that. And also keep an eye out for our new book called the Conservative Historian, which will be coming out on October 1st, and in fact, just 28 days away. Once again, we appreciate your listening.